Welcome to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur show. Today on the show, Bob is speaking with Brian Clayton. You can plan your way and strategize your way and fake work your way into nothing and waste a year doing that. And I've seen that done and I've, I've been guilty of periods of that in my life. And you really have to remind yourself of how do I reduce this down to the smallest things I can do to get to the next level. And that's, and that's it. Hi there, and welcome back to the Personal Brand Business Show. My name is Bob Gentle, and every week I speak with incredible people who share their secrets to building, marketing, and monetizing your expertise, intentionally growing a unique personal brand and the mindset you need for your business to grow and thrive. If you're new to the show, then while you still have your device in your hand, take a moment to subscribe. That way you won't miss a single episode. And if you are a regular listener, then consider sharing the show with one person. It's the very best way that you can help the show grow and help me reach more people. And if you are watching on YouTube, hi, there's something special that you can do. And it's called hitting the subscribe button, liking and commenting because YouTube will love you for it and support me even more. And I need every single one of those subscribers on YouTube. Trust me, because it's kind of new. So this week is going to be an interesting week because I think a lot of people will recognize either starting up a little business at home, cutting grass as kids or the lemonade stands, or there's lots of things like that that people do to set up businesses to make a little bit of pocket money. But not so many people turn that into a $10 million a year regional powerhouse and then go on to even wilder things. And whenever I hear a story like the one I heard earlier on and the reason my guest is here today, I know I need to find out what the X Factor was. So, Brian Clayton, welcome to the show. Bob, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, I have questions. I'll be clear to the audience. Most of my guests, I go out and I pick, and I get pitched for podcast guests at least once every single day. And the number of people I say yes to so far is probably I could count them on one hand. But your story put me in mind of a guest that I had back in 2020, and it was a lady who made soap at home called Jamie Cross. And I thought, made soap at home. I very quickly, well, very, it was very close to dismissing that pitch. It was another person pitched themselves. But I thought, hold on, she turned this into a $20 million a year business. I need to know what happened there because so many people set up little businesses at home doing things that everybody knows aren't going to go anywhere serious. And for some reason, they do. And it gets my interest um, triggered. So, Brian, welcome to the show. For the listener meeting you for the first time, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, what you do? And then we'll get into my really nosy questions. Awesome. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love seemingly non-glamorous businesses uh, like making soap at home that turn into something. Uh, I got my start in a similar business, uh, cutting lawns. <laughs> so my name is Brian Clayton. I'm CEO of Green Pal, which is like the Uber for lawn care services. And I have been in the landscaping business my whole life. I started mowing lawns when I was a kid in high school. I was actually forced into the business. It, 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 my dad got tired of watching me play Nintendo all day <laughs> and uh, said, hey, get off your butt. I got a gig for you. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. And he made me go cut the neighbor's grass. And luckily he did that because I made $20 for an hour of work. And, and I was hooked from that moment forward on owning my own little business and stuck with this little lawn mowing business through high school and then uh, went to business school and did it uh, uh, part-time through that. And then when I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go into the job market or stick with this grass cutting business I had? I didn't really want to be a lawn guy my whole life. That's not really why I wanted to you know, it's not really why why I went to business school for for five years, but but I thought, hey, you know what? Uh, this could be my lane. Uh, business ownership could be my lane, and uh, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder. I, I wanted to prove that I could build something that was that was big and valuable, and so I made a little business plan and and just started working on building a real business in, in the industry. And and over a fifteen year period of time, ended up building it to about one hundred and fifty employees around 10 million a year in sales. And then it was acquired by a national company in the United States. You wouldn't think there's like national companies that, that in the landscaping industry, 
but there are that have like thousands of employees and, and one of them ended up acquiring the business. And, and so after that, I took some time off and then I had the idea for GreenPal, which took, took me about three or four years to get rolling. But, but it now is a 10 year overnight success, powering three, 400,000 people to get grass cutting services in the, in the United States. So 22 years, one industry started with just a push mower. So I think one of the things that people like me living in the UK don't really appreciate is the scale of the lawn care business in the US. One of the things that I often hear when I'm interviewing with podcast guests in the US is, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know why it's happened, but the lawn care guys just turned up. <laughs> nice. In the UK, we don't have them in the same way. Most people cut their own grass, but we don't That's have right. as much. And we also don't have homeowners associations that will be on your ass if you don't cut your grass. So it could be it could be why why we're a little bit bigger around the waistline too. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. But I guess I'm interested to hear from you. It, it's easy to assume that your lawn care business just grew like everybody's lawn care business grew in your area. Is that fair to say, or do, or were you a lawn care local unicorn, if you like? Well, it's not common. In this industry, to to grow it up uh, a lawn mowing or landscaping business to eight figures, it does happen, but not quite often, and it, it's even less common for them to be acquired. So that was kind of a, a a rare feat. But I was lucky in the sense that I, I I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, in the United States, and and for 25, 30 years, it's been a booming local economy. So. The, 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 the towns, cities and towns around Nashville were growing and that meant new shopping centers, new apartments, new office parks, new, new properties that needed the services I was selling. So I was able to naturally grow alongside that. And then as time went on and, and I started to kind of connect the dots on, on what it meant to, to not necessarily be in the business, but be on the business and, and try to learn from bigger companies and bigger markets, I would go to a conference where where uh, you would you can meet the biggest operator in Chicago, Illinois, or or one year in Miami, Florida, and you could learn from these bigger companies and apply what they were doing in much bigger markets than Nashville. And I could I could really be the only game in town that was thinking this way. And so I was very lucky in that sense that I was able to pull from bigger companies in bigger cities and and apply it to a smaller city, but that was still growing, had vibrancy and and kind of learn from the best and apply it to my market. There was, you know, it was it's a it's a very competitive business. Um, you know, at the time in Tennessee in, in Nashville, Tennessee, there's probably two other companies um, you know, as big as mine, but that doesn't mean that the smaller guys aren't your competitors too. They you know, you're getting kind of competition from every which way. So it's a challenging business, but it's a great business, either small or large, to learn how to run a business. You know, the barriers to entry are low. And I think, you know, most founders should try to start a business like that, a service-based business to kind of cut their teeth on business ownership. I think I'm going to, I have lots of questions about your green pile and the business that it is today, but it's a very different route to market from the business that you ran before. And I think one of the things that I'm interested in before we get onto the business that you run now and how that came about is businesses can approach sales in one of two ways they wait for the phone to ring or they get after it. And so many times I see people's sales strategy is they try to do a little bit of marketing and they wait for people to come to them. And I'm guessing that you didn't do that. I mean, we haven't spoken about this, but I'm interested to know from a local business perspective, what was the sales strategy that led to the success then? Yeah, it's it's something that you learn, you know, in the, in the early days that you're not in the lawn mowing business, you're not in the landscaping business, you're in the sales business. And, and uh, I guess I, I, that, I, I had that, that epiphany, maybe year three, I maybe had gotten the business to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue, maybe 500,000 a year in revenue. And, and I just, just through sheer will, we were able to do that and had a couple of helpers, but I really wanted to get it to a million in revenue and then three and five and 10. And, and I began to kind of peel away the layers of the onion to understand that we're actually in the sales business. I need a sales system. I need to be able to, to, to create a repeatable system to prospect clients that need my, my services, to differentiate 
what it is I'm doing from the competition and, and, and meet that customer where they're at and present it to them and be price competitive and get then win that business and then keep that business. And, and it took like five years to, to, you know, these days you could learn these things in, in a weekend, but back then, you know, there was no YouTube. And so a lot of these things I've had to learn through trial and error and, and through networking and talking to other operators and was slowly able to, to develop a system where, I was the chief, you know, the lead sales guy and I ran it for a long time. And then I was able to put somebody in some roles along that process and then slowly build out a sales team of, of, uh, of six or seven people where it was an engine, an engine of growth inside the company. So yeah, most businesses don't grow themselves. And, and in fact, you know, fast forward where, I'm, where we're at with, with green pal today, you know, there, there's, there's a there's a saying that first time founders care about product and second time found founders worry about distribution. And so what they mean by that is that, you know, most people that are starting a new business obsess over the product or service and, and they don't think about how they're going to get it in the hands of customers. And, yeah. the, and the person that's been around the block a couple of times and has the scars and the PTSD knows that building the business, building the product or service is the easy part. What is actually harder is getting people to buy it and, and crafting a value proposition that, that differentiates yourself in the marketplace. That's actually harder. And, and so the, the second time founder starts there and then, and then works backwards. That's why, you know, you see these crazy things that happen with, with influencers these days who are able to seemingly build a hundred million dollar business overnight, whether it be Logan Paul with an energy drink or what have you. And, and it's because they have the hard part figured out. Yeah. They got the distribution. You know, Kim Kardashian has the distribution and 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 so brands are willing to partner with them. Brands that might have been in this game for 20 or 30 years or whatever business, but all of a sudden now this 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 person with the distribution gets to cut the line because it's the way it works. The distribution is is the harder piece of it. And that's the way it was you know, when I was running my landscaping business, you know, beautifying people's properties, making them look nice, making sure the grass was green, making sure the flowers were blooming year round, making them pristine was hard, but it was actually, that was easy in comparison to yeah. developing a system to, to, to connect that with people who needed those services and, and, and win that business. I think this is a mistake that I see a lot of people making. And I think to your point about you can learn anything in a weekend, the problem is knowledge is cheap now. Execution is the precious thing. And what I love about what you did was the execution part of it, not so much the learning of it, because I've discovered that you can teach people all you want, but you can't make them do it a lot of the time. It's so true. And sales is probably the one thing where most business owners know that they should be doing prospecting and they should be developing new relationships, but they will always find something that seems to be more important. Right. It's the seemingly urgent over the actually important. Exactly. It always, always seems to go that way. It's, it's so true. And, 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 and when I was starting green pal, there was uh this, it, there was not, uh, it was, it was common and popular to have these weekend hackathons. And this was 10 years ago. And so it's, it's not so common anymore. But back then I was trying to, I was trying to like reinvent myself as a tech entrepreneur. So I would go to these weekend hackathons. And although I didn't know how to learn, I didn't know how to code at the time. I was around people that were, and it was cool. And it was fun. And so the idea is you would put together a crappy product in a weekend and try to get like 10 customers for it by Sunday. And you would learn more in like three days of doing that about, product development, execution, sales, customer discovery, all of that than you would in like five years of business school because it forced you to get out of the building, you know, go sit at a Starbucks and 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 hand out $5 Starbucks gift cards begging somebody to try to try your crappy product. Things like that, the actual execution is like what is needed at level 1 of the game that most people want to skip over or even worse, delegate and outsource when they've never like codified how to do it themselves. And we're all guilty of it. Nobody wants to cold call. Nobody wants to cold email. Nobody wants to prospect. These are these are things that are genuinely not fun to do, but that have to be done in the early days. I think this is the, for me, is the fundamentally important lesson that anything worth worth happening, or rather, anything worth having, is probably on the other side of a door labeled uncomfortable. Yeah, and, and not fun. <laughs> yeah. So 
we built a success with the lawn care business. You exited that. I guess with the turnover or the revenue that that business had, you would have exited to the extent where I guess you could have chosen to not do something else. You, you could have yeah. essentially retired at that point. It was life-changing in that way that I no longer had to be anywhere, no longer had to do anything, no longer had to answer another phone call. And so it was very liberating in, in that sense. But in the, on the other hand, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in that business. You know, mm. from the age of 15 to the age of 33, it was all I was, knew who I, my identity, my, really my, I spent more time with, with the people that I ran that company with and my family. A lot of them felt like family. You know, a lot of them started with me in year two or three and stuck with me all the way through. So like I used people that were, that felt like family and now they weren't my family anymore. And so I had to help with the transition of somebody else taking it over. So that was really hard. And so I kind of went through a, uh, almost a period of melancholy about it. And, and, uh, and I had to learn about myself because my, the plan, my plan was not to get back into the game because running that business and then grooming it for sale and then getting it sold was really hard and almost killed me. And so I didn't want, didn't want to do that again, but I thought, I thought I learned about myself that I was wired to want to be in the game, that something was missing. I needed a mission, but I made a couple promises to myself that from that moment forward, I was only going to do what I enjoyed doing. So, so if I didn't enjoy the next business, I would just stop. And that, and that no matter what, I would always be working on my best idea. And so those two kind of default modes, I guess, is what got me through the first three or four years of building Green Pal because the first four or five years were really tough because I'm having to learn how to write code, learn how to build software while executing it. And then, you know, we're uh, built. So working on myself, working in the business and on the business at the same time. Yeah. And uh, I guess fortunately, I'm not like terribly creative because I had I have one good idea. I've had one good idea in 10 years. And, and so this is it. Like it was either that or nothing. And so that, that kind of default kind of mindset is what, what got me through and my team through the first few years that were, that were challenging. But I didn't have to do it, but, I, but it was what I wanted to do, right? Yeah. And so it was this weird thing. So it's, it's interesting. You think you've had one, one good idea in 10 years. I look at the way your green pile has been built and I see a whole series of good ideas. It's really, really well put together um, for reasons we'll get into. But before we do that, I think I, and I think a lot of people will be interested in this. How do you go from idea to finished product? Now that sounds like a really stupid question, but it isn't because you've spoken about learning to code. I don't know how much you were involved in actually building the product itself. Did you do that yourself or did you bring somebody in or what did it, what did it going from idea to first dollar look like in your green pile? Yeah, and also, you know, for the listener, what is it? That's probably the more important question right now. Yeah. So, so green pile, you know, is the Uber for, for lawn care in the United States. So, you know, if, if, if to your point earlier, most people pay to have somebody mow their yard and to get it done normally, you have to like call somebody on Craigslist or Facebook or ask a friend for refer for a referral. And you got to like dial for dollars, like pull these people for their availability and pricing. And then you hire one and they may show up, they may not. And then they might show up once and then they, they ghost you and they never show up again. And then like, you have to like go through this process over and over again. And the problem that we set out to solve was it should just be as easy as pushing a button on your phone, like ordering something on Amazon, ordering an Uber, or DoorDash or Instacart or Postmates or something like that. And and so that that idea we had 10 years ago is still the same idea we're working on today, making it just just like as easy as as pushing a button, somebody comes and takes care of it for you, you pay them and set them up for the whole year, and now you don't have to worry about that anymore. And to get to that point, we had to solve like a million problems that go wrong with with why it sucks to hire a gardener. And, you know, whether it be his equipment broke down. The fence gate in your backyard is too small for his lawnmower. His main helper got a DUI last night. It rained part of the day, so he didn't get all of his stops done. Uh, he he uh, didn't realize the size of the property and, and misquoted it. He just didn't feel like working that day, doggone it. You know, like all of these things that happen that cause it to be really difficult to get this one chore done. 
And on the other side, for a lawn care service, all the reasons why it sucks to run a lawn mowing business. You don't, you know, you, you get stiffed on like 30% of the work you do. Like you just never get paid for because because these people suddenly after the grass is, you know, groomed, they're they're hard to get a hold of now. I mean, that that's true. And and then, you know, well, I've got a I've got a yard over here on this side of town and one over here and it's 15 minutes. And if there's traffic, 30 minutes to get one to the other. And now I've lost all that money. You know, I don't know how to do marketing. I don't know how to do Facebook ads. I don't know how to get customers. So all these reasons why it sucks to run a lawn mowing business, we set out to, to solve at the same time to make it easier to, to conduct this commerce on our platform than, than otherwise. So that's the problems we set out to solve then and still making better and better now. And, you know, how do you go from there should be a button to, to, to push and get this done to actually something that, that works, you, you know, the, the, the thing is, is you can you can plan your way and strategize your way into and, and fake work your way into nothing, and waste a year doing that. And and I've seen that done, and I've I've been guilty of periods of that in my life. And you really have to remind yourself of how do I how do I reduce this down to the smallest things I can do to get to the next level. And that's and that's it. There, there's a quote. Um, by Paul Graham, who is the proprietor of a of a startup incubator called Y Combinator, and these guys are behind like some of the biggest names in tech. And he says that that action produces information. And what he means by that is is that in the early days, it really is an experiment. You wanna you wanna do things that produce information that then guide you on what the next thing set of things to do is, and and that you have to. The only way to get that feedback loop is to get something in the hands of people and then and then let that guide you through this process of building something that people actually want. And there's been a million books written on this and every one of them has kind of their own flavor and and their own take. But that's really the, the crux of it is 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 distilling your product down into something that people can interact with and use, even if it's just a prototype and then getting that feedback and, and reinvesting it into moving forward one step at a time really looking at it like a video game like like 10 levels of super mario brothers and just working through one level at a time and not getting caught up in all of these things that are you know that are basically fake work that are everything but talking to customers you know everything but sales everything but actually getting somebody to put a credit card in you know uh, just just as a hobby I, I, I like to mentor new founders and Every single founder in the early days wants to do everything, but get a credit card number from somebody to use your product. And it's, and it's like, you know, if you can't get five or 10 of those, then, then there is no there there. And so that, that's the way, you know, I experienced it. And, uh, you know, when I was transitioning from a blue collar entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur, I, I was, I try to read everything I could get my hands on and read every book that Eric Reese wrote and his, his mentor, uh, Steve Blank. And they, 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 you know, Eric Reese is the, is the proprietor of the, the lean startup methodology. And what these guys t- tell you in, in, in 2000 pages of text is that you have to get out of the building. You have to get out of behind the laptop and you have to meet your customer where they're at and hand crank the first 10, 20, hundred sales to learn how to get to a thousand. And then, and then, and then 10,000 eventually. Most people want to skip all that, go to the scale part. And the, the fact is you can't skip it. I think that's really, really interesting because you're talking about the, the, the it was the same in the blue collar. Nothing was going to work. You couldn't lead a team in, in sales until you knew what worked. That's right. And in the, the tech startup, again, you can't expect to sell thousands if you can't personally sell a hundred. That's right. I see the same with, the expert entrepreneurs and the, the online marketers as well that and coaches can be particularly bad for this that they want to jump straight into sales funnels and automation but if you can't sell person to person first consistently how can you expect to have a system that scales if if you haven't actually formulated your your pitch and you understand the triggers of your clients, the pain points, the gains, the things they're looking for, what they want to move towards, what they want to move away from. How are you going to communicate your value to them in such a way that they're motivated to take that action? If you can't do this one-to-one, it's never going to happen at scale. So that, I'd never consider that. Pretty much in 22 years of business, every single time I've tried to delegate something, 
that I haven't done to my, myself to a degree, it's always failed. Mm. And, uh, you know, whether it be hiring a social media marketer, hiring a copywriter, hiring a designer, hiring a coder, it doesn't matter if I haven't done like the 80-20 of it myself to understand what good looks like, to understand how long something should take, to understand what, you know, what success looks like. I mean, with very rare exceptions, almost every single time, even bookkeeping, you know, I, I did our own bookkeeping for the first three years. And then when, then when I went to go hire a bookkeeper, I knew exactly what I was looking for. I'm looking for somebody to do all of this BS that I do for, you know, three hours a week. I don't want to do it anymore. I know exactly how to do it. And here's what I want you to do. So, so every time you try to delegate from, from, uh, from abdication, meaning I don't want to handle this, you handle it. I don't know how it works. You handle it. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. You want to handle, you want to delegate from, from stewardship. This is how we do this here. This is why we do it this way. These are the steps to go into it. Here's how we gauge success. Here's what we're looking for. Here's how long we think it should take and, and so on. And like the codified process is, is how delegation works in, from, from my experience. Now, the, the thing is, it's, it's a lot harder to, to put in the time on the front end and, and develop that system and process. But, you know, in life and business, if you, if you do hard things, business will be easy. If you do easy things, business will be hard. I love that. I think that might be the title of the podcast. <laughs> I heard that somewhere, but I don't know where. <laughs> you can have it. So let's just imagine, like, I have ideas for software products. Now, I think a lot of people assume, because there's a little bit of mystique and mythology around the startup culture, that if you've got an idea, you need to go and find an investor uh, who's going to pay for you to hire developers and then they will pay for you to hire a marketing team and it needs a lot of money to take a good idea to market. What's your perspective on that? How how should that go in a, in a properly bootstrapped environment? You know, luckily, my company bootstrapped from zero to now 30 million a year in revenue. And if we had raised a bunch of money we wouldn't be where we are today. Paradoxically, like we would have crashed and burned already because a lot of times when you go and, and raise money, even if it's just a little bit of money in the early days, it it kind of papers over the hard work and it, it kind of gives you the ability to not do the hard work. And so in the early days, when we were starting GreenPal, we, we, we couldn't raise any money because we're out of Nashville, Tennessee, which is not, it's not a, a deep pool of venture capital sloshing around. And we kind of made a half-hearted attempt at trying to raise money from VCs other parts of the country, but nobody was, nobody was trying to hear it. And, and so for us, that focused, that, that made us focus on like building a product that customers wanted to use and keep using, not because it was something we intuitively knew that we had needed to do. It was because it was necessity. Like necessity is the mother of invention. We had to, like hustle up a hundred or a thousand people because we needed to make a thousand dollars a month to try to pay the AWS bill and, 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 and things like that. And so if we had raised 50 or a hundred thousand or 500,000, we might've skipped all of the meetings we had at kitchen counters or at Starbucks, you know, and, and meeting with, 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 with our customers face to face and, and asking them what they wish the product would do, differently and where we let them down and how they normally get a lawn mowing service and like all of these things that gave us key insights in the early days that that enables to how to how to build something that people wanted to use so for us that was that was what we needed to do at the time and then and then all around us there was this huge amounts of money getting thrown at uber for x ideas so this was 2013 14 15 uber had just kind of started taking over the world. And so a lot of venture capital was going after these types of ideas. So Uber for laundry service, Uber for home services, Uber uh, Uber for, for home cleaning, Uber for locksmiths, Uber for tow trucks, you name it. And pretty much nine out of 10, maybe more of them were dead in 12 to 24 months because they all raised a bunch of money and then, and then put that on Google ads or Facebook ads. And it just like went in one door and, and it like, it just came in the top and fell out the bottom. And, and we started observing this and we're like, man, there's something going on here. We definitely don't want to go down that, go down that path. Cause this is our one thing. And so we just took a very pragmatic, slow, 
ground and pound approach to setting small goals and knocking them down. Our first goal was 100 customers, 100 transactions a week. And it took us two years to get that done. But we knew that transactions per week was was an indicator of success, mm-hmm. not signups, not homepage visits, not what the brand looked like, not reviews, not some pitch competition we won. None of these other things mattered. The only thing that mattered, like the one metric that mattered was transactions per week. If that's not going up, then either we don't have an idea, we don't have a business and we need to be honest about that, or we need to take a look at what we're, what we're doing wrong. And, and we just focused on that one thing. And and the goal was for a hundred a week. And that took us two years to match a hundred buyers and sellers to where they wanted to do business on our platform. But there was no reason to try to go get 10,000 until we could get a hundred. And, and, and I guess my point is that venture capital and angel money sometimes for, for a new founder founding team can cause them to skip all of those hard steps can cause them to not, you know, beg 10 of their customers to meet them at Starbucks and, and do, and, you know, use the product together, you know, things like that. Now here I am 10 years in. And, and, and if you said, Hey, now guess what? That 10 years you just spent sucked. You got to do it all over again, mm-hmm. except for this time you've got no money, but knowing everything, you know, now uh, we're going to get in the DeLorean. We're going to go back to 2013. We're going to start the company over again. What are you going to do? I'm going to go raise money. Because now I know all the stuff to do. I know how to discover, you know, I know what the product needs to look like. I've, I've kind of been around the block on this. And the, the venture capital will be uh, rocket fuel in this rocket that I know how to build. But knowing then what I, you know, not having that knowledge, not, you know, it would be like pour, pouring rocket fuel in a Toyota Camry. It just would have exploded. So I'm not anti uh, venture capital, you just need to know that it is rocket fuel and you better be ready for rocket fuel before you take it. And I think a good litmus test for this is be damn sure to the point where like, would you mortgage your mother's home to to, to fund this business? And if not, then, you know, may, maybe it's not a good idea to go begging investors for money. I think you paint a really, really clear picture there. Yeah, it's the difference between a hand grenade and a shaped charge. A hand grenade is just going to go boom and hit whatever's in the room. Right. Chip charge is going to get a job done. That's right. And and the VCs throwing all this money around, they're tossing hand grenades everywhere. And if one of them hits the target, then they have fulfilled their mission. Whereas you have one grenade. And if yours doesn't hit the target, you've just wasted a decade of your life. Yeah. And so that's, that's the dynamic, you know, people need to be aware of. And I think it's more clear now than it's ever been, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of this stuff was mysterious and nobody really knew or understood it. Now we've been able to observe, you know, from the sidelines and see the winners and, 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 and the people that didn't, that didn't have good outcomes, you know, you got to, now you have a clear picture of what it means to go down this path. But once you go down the path of raising investor funding, it's really hard to unwind. You kind of do set off a chain reaction of events that's hard to reverse. So there's one thing for me that really stands out in your business, and that is the organic positioning of your site within Google. I did a little bit of a look around and I can Google lawn care in pretty much any city that you say you operate in. And I experimented with five. I have a limited patience, but you were on page one of Google for all of them. And this wasn't sponsored. This was quite natural positioning on Google. And you don't have like a huge website doing all the things that people tell you you need to do. Like you must have a blog and massive content machine. You have a well put together website. So I'm curious. And I think I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't ask. What are you doing in terms of work? Because that doesn't happen by accident. What does what is your Google strategy there without giving away any trade secrets? Because I think a lot of people would want to know. Yeah. Well, the the the, the fortunate thing is there's really almost no trade secrets in, in 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 organic search. A lot of it just boils down to ground and pound grinding out the day-to-day slog of SEO. We made a bet early on, like month three, that we were going to throw everything we had into building an, an organic search 
I don't want to say powerhouse because it still feels like day one, but in our little world, we, we do pretty good. And, and uh, we made that decision because we tested everything else. We, we, uh, we had a, a little bit of money that we, that we pulled together ourselves. Like we pulled together $200,000 of our own cash. We wasted $150,000 of that on contractors in the early days that, that didn't pan out. And then we learned that we had to do this ourselves. So we had like 50 grand left, couldn't pay ourselves anything. And so we're, 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 we're using what little money we have left to experiment in these other channels, so whether it be Facebook ads, Google ads, even print, radio, you name it. And it, like we were getting customers, but man, it was in some cases, you know, $100, $200, $500 to, to, to acquire a customer on these channels. And we weren't making that off of them in, in a year's time. And, and so we, 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 we learned early on through these kitchen counter talks, these Starbucks talks that we had always asked these folks, you know, how do you normally find a lawn mowing service? Well, I'd ask friends and family. Okay. Well, how does that usually work? Well, I get one name and I don't know if they're any good. And then, and then after that, I would like begrudgingly go to Google and type lawn care near me. And we heard that over and over and over and over again. And so we kind of just said, okay, we're just going to bet the house on this one channel and not worry about anything else, not even try anything else, not try social, not try, just do everything we can to, to, to compete in, in organic search. And, and what that, uh, revealed was that, okay, all of this stuff we just did building this platform that connects buyers and sellers and lawn mowing and the review system, the payment system, all of these things, like that was the easy part. What's actually harder is now the distribution competing in Google organic search, developing a property that will rank well. And all of the inputs that go into that is actually going to be, you know, five times harder than just building the app was. And that was daunting. But, you know, we had no choice. It was it was uh, default, you know, by default, it's going to work on this project. Don't have any other better ideas. Let's just keep moving. And every single day, my co-founders and I, it would be like three, three, four, five hours of in the business, just making sure people's lawns were getting mowed on time. A couple of hours, you know, trying to, you know, on the business, trying to develop what our strategy is and what we were trying to do and mapping that out. And then another three or four hours working on ourselves. So at that stage of the game, it was pouring over every SEO blog we could get our hands on, watching every online tutorial, buying a bunch of courses, most of which that sucked, but one out of 10 was really good and, and applying what we were learning to the property and starting really, really humbly and small. So, so we start, we, we spent three years just in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we couldn't rank for lawn care, Nashville, but we could rank for lawn care, Smyrna, Franklin, lawn care, Clarksville. These are towns around Nashville. And, and we learned that and slowly built it up. And the next thing we knew, we, we were, we were winning in all the keywords in that Metro and then developed a little playbook on how to do it in other metros and slowly rolled the product out to other cities little by little. And, and over 10 years we're, we were able to get it rolling in, in every major city in the United States. So from your perspective, I think one of the things, what I'm assuming is you have a, a storehouse of knowledge there and you could be fairly sure you could walk into pretty much anyone's business and you know, which levers to pull in order to, rank because what you've achieved with Greenpile was difficult. And I think we we take for granted the knowledge that we have a lot of the time. Something that I often find with experts is they know that of the million levers you could pull in any business, there's usually only three or four levers that you need to pull. That's right. So if if you were running a little lawn care business in a place that you didn't operate and you, you met the operator and he said to you, what should I do? What would your answer to him be? Well, the first thing, uh, if you're going to try to compete in organic search is you have to manage your own expectations. And so the first thing is, is like, we need to look at this, like, like it's a lot like dieting in a weird way. Like, like there's like six months of work before you start seeing any results and you really get, you, you really you really get discouraged because you're doing all this work and, and pretty much everything you do in SEO, not everything. Some things do do yield some 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 quicker results, but a lot of stuff that you do, particularly as you get further down the road, don't really show up until six months or a year later. 
And and so that's the first thing is like to understand that this is a long game. It, it, it is a way to, to build defensibility, uh, to build an asset um, that, that is going to be perpetual, uh, that is going to, to, to attract people to your front door. And so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, you know, I, th- I think we're, we're entering an age of authenticity, um, what, you know, just in general and really when it comes to SEO, because, you know, these days you can pop anything into chat GPT and get an answer back. And it's not going to be a truly authentic answer, but you know, you can get pretty good answer for a lot of different queries. So nowadays, you know, for especially somebody new in SEO is like authenticity is going to be your competitive advantage. So what is it that you do differently than your competitors and how do we showcase that and, and, and contentize that and how do we embed that into the workflow and process of, of, of your business. So let's say you were a plumber and like, you know, you, it's you and, and three, you know, techs and, you know, every single job you go and take a before and after picture and you talk about what the customer's problem was and you talk about how you guys solved it in a way that other people can't solve it. And, and then, and then, and then, but, but you get that, that, that fodder to, to somebody on your team who's going to write that. And then they're following a codified process that you've laid out to get that onto the site. And these things take time to develop, but that is SEO. And that's why it is hard. And, 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 and I learned this in the early days that, man, you know, we're really like a media property more than, than anything else. We're having to, to generate this, this helpful content that people need that's, that's topically relevant to what it is we do. And then we have to promote that to 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 increase our our authority in the in the world of of the internet. So content really, I mean, uh, SEO comes comes back to the three things. You know, the, the the content you're putting out there, which I just described, the authority around that content, people referencing it, linking linking back to it, and then the property itself, the the, the technical aspects of it that that uh, are hard, but actually the easiest part of it. So doing all three of those at the same time. And you might say, I'm just a plumber. I don't have time to do any of this stuff. Well, you can hire people that can help you, but you're still going to have to uh, create that often. You're still going to have to like let that authenticity come through in the process. Like nobody can do that for you. Nobody can write about how you have this certain camera system that will clear a drain, you know, in this type of, of, of crawl space that nobody else has got. But I get, I bet you something that that you know maybe twenty people are looking for that every month in your market. And if you had a piece of content that described all that, you know whether you know with a, with a video and with a breakdown, you would get that business. And then Google looks at that and and it's like, oh yeah, now this is this is a property that's worth promoting. And and then maybe you know you you uh, you people will 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 link to it uh, from from the local uh, BBB or the local chamber of commerce, things like that. Whereas if you're not putting anything out there, none of this happens and you're, and you're just, you're invisible. I think what's interesting listening to you there is when you described what led to the success in your lawn care business, it was doing the hard thing. It was protecting a portion of your time for growth. Right. And online, we're talking exactly the same thing. And I think a good rule of thumb for any business owner is apply the 80-20 rule. And not the 100% rule. 80%, whatever it is you do for money, you get on with that. But you need to protect 20% for the things that are going to move you forward. And into that comes SEO. If you're a local service business, if you can get on page one in Google, the phone will ring way more often. And and if you can do that, then then that that unlocks all kinds of optionality to build a system around that, those opportunities coming to your front door. Yeah. And it's like we've been talking about for the past, you know, 30 minutes is the hard part is the distribution. Once the phone's ringing, all the other stuff is easy in comparison. The harder thing to do is to get the phone to ring. So the last thing I'd like to talk about really is in many ways, you could be not going on podcast interviews. You have a business that's, it's not running on autopilot, but you could quite happily sit behind the scenes and not do podcast interviews, although it does help with SEO and things like that. So I'm curious to know what does the next book of Brian Clayton look like? Because personal branding, founder branding, they're important, but you could get away with not doing those the same way as you could have got away with not doing lots of difficult things. And I'm guessing you see a role for yourself beyond your green pile. And I'm I'm interested to know what that looks like. 
Well, I think the first piece of it is I, I enjoy doing interviews. I think in, in life and business, you're, you're either in a state of expansion or contraction. You're either coping or you're thriving. And for me, jumping on an interview once a day or once a week, it's just a good hygiene for me to stay in a state of expansion, sharing my thoughts, uh, you know, externalizing my philosophies on, on business and also staying sharp myself, trying to read books, trying to listen to podcasts, YouTube university, you name it. I got to bring it when I, when I'm going to be on, on Bob's show. And, and I've, and I've got to, I've got to have something to talk about. And so I get more out of it probably than anything. So that's, that's, that's step one. Reason number two is if you build the people, the people will build the company. And so that's the stage of the game we're at now, you know, Step one, you know, the, the first phase of, of, of building a business is really just you grinding it out, hand-to-hand combat, ground and pound. But the second phase, like the company growth phase, is you building the team. And so part of that is this mysterious thing of culture and hiring good good cultural fits and, and, and not screwing that up as the founder, as a CEO. That's like one of your biggest jobs. And so as, as I'm putting out my thoughts and ideas and my personality type and into the world, I'm I'm kind of trying to lay out a a track record of this is the type of 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 environment that you're going to work in and it, and if and it, and if you're not vibing with this guy then it's then it's not a good fit. So I'm trying to kind of pre-screen in that way. So that's a tactical thing that that I'm able to get out of out of kind of sharing my thoughts and philosophies into the ether. Uh, because somebody can very quickly watch a podcast with me and say, "Hey, nah, this guy seems kind of like a jerk," or you know what, I kind of like this guy. And so, you know, you you can decide that. And the th- the third thing is, is you know, who knows? I, I, I'd I'd love to keep running this business until until we get to you know, right now we're at three four hundred thousand people. I'd like to get to a million, and I want to get to a hundred million in sales. We're gonna find out if I'm any good at that or not. And you know, if if I if I am, then great. If not, we'll get a professional CEO. But then then what am I going to do? <laughs> you know. And so uh, and so, personal branding I think plays into that. You know what what your next what your next two or three things are. I I will say this. It's interesting to me. Like when I'm hiring people, I almost don't care. I really don't care where you went to school. I almost don't care where you worked. I really just want to look at like what you've built. What your hop, you know, what you've done. Do you have, you know, let me look at your GitHub. Let do you have a Medium page you've been working on, or or Behance portfolio, or or some, or do, or is there a hobby site that you made that does some weird cool thing? You know, so it's like this age of like personal brand. I think it's getting more and more important. Where where it almost doesn't matter what your resume looks like. Send me these five things, and if you don't have these five things, there's 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 ten other people that that do. You know, do you participate on Quora? and answer people's questions. Do you have an Instagram or LinkedIn that, that you're putting authenticity through? So I think, it, I think it does matter. And, but for me, you know, I just enjoy, uh, if, again, if I don't enjoy doing any of this, I won't do it. So I enjoy doing interviews. I enjoy putting my stuff on Instagram and to a degree LinkedIn. And, and so that's why I do it. I think what's interesting listening to you is one of the things, because I, I speak to a lot of people and success leaves clues. That's a bit of a cliche, but it does. And I think one of the things you have habitually developed is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And actually you're not comfortable unless you're uncomfortable. And that's a really powerful leadership quality. And I think what's interesting is you leading through discomfort. I mean, podcast interviews, they're they're fun. Yeah. But you're always on the edge. But it gives permission to everyone else in the organization to be on the edge. In fact, it sets an expectation to be on the edge. And this is it's not just personal branding, it's leadership branding. It's really important in an organization like yours. And I consistently see wherever I see that, you typically see a more successful organization, which is really interesting. That's right. And 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 the momentum of all of that does create luck. And it was just like, just like going back to the plumber example, not putting the, the before and after drain stuff on his website and his YouTube and stuff. If he didn't expose the, the, that, that content out there, then guess what? Nothing's going to happen, right? And so that momentum putting in the reps generates that luck and serendipity. And you can't always close the loop on these things. You don't ever really know. But, but if, you, if you're 
doing these things day in, day out for years, it does, they don't add up, they compound yeah. over time. I think, again, this is really looking at making space for the actually important over the seemingly urgent. That's right. And, uh, it, for me, is a clear success strategy and one that you've brought to bear brilliantly. Brian, I'm very aware of the time. I've taken a lot of yours and yours is worth way more than mine. I'm very grateful <laughs> I don't know for that. about that. <laughs> <laughs> but for the listener who thinks they'd like to find out more about you, where's the best place to hang out with you online? Yeah, just find me on Instagram. That's actually, it's kind of weird, but that's where I put all my stuff out at. Uh, Brian M. Clayton, just drop me a DM there. Anybody in the United States that doesn't want to mow your own yard, just go to greenpound.com. And my last question is, what's one thing you do now that you wish had started five years ago? Oh man. So, so many things, you know, like, uh, uh one of my f- favorite business books is, is the autobiography of, of Warren Buffett and what that book really is about. I think it's called the snowball. And what that book is really about is just, is just compound interest and how you, 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 you really cannot see how these little things are compounding in the early days. And all of a sudden the, the numbers get big and bigger and bigger and, I think Warren Buffett has made more off off the latest investment off of Apple in the last five years than they than they did the previous fifty or sixty years cumulatively because it compounded to that point. So whether it be three years, five years, ten years ago, I I, I always want to try to reiterate and beat into my head compound compounding compound interest the these small things that you're doing whether it be eating the right things, exercising, putting in the reps in business. They don't add up, they compound. And it almost like doesn't matter what your goals are. The only thing that matters is is the systems and processes that you're doing every day that, that compound. So that's what I would beat in my head five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Probably, probably would be at that million users by now. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. And for anyone listening as well, Warren Buffett is probably quite a big book. There's also a very small book called The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy which will make that really clear really fast and if you haven't read it you really really should brian clayton you have been awesome i've really enjoyed myself and thank you so much for your time bob thanks for having me on i've enjoyed it